0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now to resume our journey in the season of Advent, preparing for the celebration of Christmas, preparing for the coming of Jesus as we look at the last prophetic word in the, book of, in, the, in the Old Testament, through the prophet, the book of Malachi. And so Malachi is the last prophetic word, possibly not the last, the, in that sense, maybe not the last book of the Old Testament written. It's possible that parts of Ezra and Nehemiah might have been written later. But this is the last prophet to speak to God's people before God enters into, after a 400-year wait, as Jesus Christ into the story to be in and for these people. Emmanuel, God with us is, has, as we sing and celebrate these things together. And, and so I'm grateful that as a church, this is how we celebrate Christmas. On the Lord's Day, we'll, we'll gather again next Sunday and, and celebrate the coming of Jesus. I hope that I, I can offer some ways in which that as you celebrate Christmas with your family, or however, with your friends, however you mean to do that, that, that we have a word here that, that introduces us how, to how we ought to celebrate Christmas and prepare for. The, the word Advent is simply just to come. And, and this for us is how we prepare for the coming of God to be with us in Jesus Christ. And so I, I would just kind of, as best I can, uh, point your attention to a couple of things here. And this is in this, in one sense, I'll illustrate it this way. This is the last word that God gives to these people before an extended period of silence that he enters into the story. You'll know this if you can imagine even in your own life, last words, words that someone spoke with kind of a final ring to it. This is a, there's a tradition kind of in our, in our family. I remember the last words uh, my father even shared with me as, as I was moving out to get married. And they come from a tradition that the last words of my grandfather spoke to my father. It's a story kind of told in my own family of like, my, my grandfather pulled my father aside and, and just kind of spoke these final words, right? And he just said, listen... After today, you can't come home. That's all I said. He said, you're going to reconcile it, you're going to work it out, and you cannot come home to this house. right? It was, it was kind of this prophetic, laugh. it's like the last word, right? It's like, this is where you're going, this is what you're doing. And, and this is what we expect, right? We have a tradition of last words in my own family, but, but last words are, are powerful. If they're the last thing you know you're going to get to say or the last thing you know you're going to get to hear, they have weight to them. And that's what the prophet Malachi serves for us as, as many ways like the book of Revelation for the Old Testament. It's like this last little bit where we begin to wait for, in faith, the coming of Jesus to enter into the story. Simply, similarly, as Christians see the book of Revelation as, a, as an invitation to anticipate and patiently wait for Jesus to come back and make all things new. And so this messenger Malachi, we know very little about him, but he has been speaking to us through the, the, the voice of God here is, is coming to his people through Malachi through six disputes, that is disagreements, preparations for for what, what they ought to be doing and how they ought to be reflecting and repenting and responding to Jesus entering into the story. So we're going to read, beginning in verse 17, the fourth, fifth, and sixth dispute in this book. So you'll see here there's three different sections, the fourth, fifth, and sixth dispute. They're like disagreements that take place between God through the prophet Malachi and the people who have rebelled against God. They're they're the post-exilic period. Remember in Lamentations, we were walking through the book in which the people were being exiled, sent out, scattered to Babylon. Everything was destroyed. And, And generations later, they moved back into Jerusalem, began to rebuild, and yet in this post-exilic period, after the exile, things were not what they had hoped. They were disillusioned and disappointed. Can you relate? Disappointed in the way that things had turned out. Welcome to 2020. And I want you to see this timeless word is for all of us who patiently wait for and hope for resolution Repair to what's broken. So beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold. Behold. "...sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be be food in my house. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with, one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. May God speak to us through His Word and prepare us as we celebrate Christmas, the coming of Jesus together. These people are disillusioned and disappointed. And in these three disputes, The prophet Malachi speaks for God, and they respond with questions. They respond coldly and bitterly. I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but this is the good news of Advent and the good news underlying the message of Malachi. God comes to mouthy, apathetic, and disrespectful people. Did Did you hear the questions that were raised? The Lord speaks, and they're like, how is that really true? Right? You can hear the echoes of the book of Genesis when the first thing that happened for the people who were experiencing the presence and blessing of God in the garden were tempted by the enemy to do what? Question God. Is God really good? How is he really good? Is he really going to do what he says he's going to do? And so each of these disputes, all six of them, are, are evidence for us that, that God comes to this cynical, doubting, questioning people. And I don't know about you, but that's good news for a person like me. That's good news for a person like me. And so, so maybe if you're in this room or, or you're hearing this, and, and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And maybe you, you have lots of doubts about this thing that Christians are saying and what it is that we, what we invite people to believe. Maybe you have deep cynicism about the world. Hey, welcome. This message is for you and for me. And I want to invite you into considering the possibility that, that your cynicism is... It's not not unfounded, but instead your cynicism might be an invitation to consider that there's something else for us. Your doubts are actually an invitation, a right invitation to trust in something else. Maybe I'll say it this way. How about you turn your cynicism on your cynicism? How about maybe you doubt your doubts? If you want to doubt everything and doubt that that God is real and that Christ is who he says he is, how about you, if you're going to doubt everything, doubt your doubts. Because this dispute is an invitation for doubting, disillusioned, disappointed people to consider that God is going to restore what's broken. That's what Advent is. We are waiting and trusting that God is going to come. We are waiting and trusting to be satisfied by God. We wait by faith. As the people in the original, uh, who originally received this prophetic word, they were waiting by faith for the first coming of God. But you and I, having met Jesus and known Jesus, we wait by faith for his second coming. And so from these three disputes, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, we see God's going to be faithful. God's going to come and enter into the story. You saw that in the first dispute. And so here's what I want to maybe invite you to consider as we, as we weigh these three disputes, kind of the climax of the book and the fourth, and as it trails off to the conclusion, we'll, we'll wrap up as we celebrate uh, Christmas even again together this next Sunday, that God comes to make us pure because he possesses everything, including us. You saw that in the first dispute, that God's going to enter in and refine, make things Pure. And there's a, there's a question about whether or not we rob God or steal from God, if God because God owns everything. But, but when we see the last dispute is that we can return, we can trust, we can serve knowing that in the end, we belong to Him. As a father possesses his children in love, that's, that's what we see here. God comes to make us pure, he makes us holy, because He owns everything, including us. But in those three disputes, I, I might offer like kind of three things that That are evident. You saw in the first dispute beginning in verse 17, these people have wearied the Lord by, in essence, you see the language of Isaiah 5 kind of running through here is that they've kind of called what's good evil and what's evil good, and and they've begun to doubt God's goodness, that God will be just, and so therefore they start to say, God is actually blessing what's evil. So they get good and evil twisted. The second dispute, you see, beginning in in chapter six, that, or excuse me, in chapter three, verse six that the unchangeable nature of God is to invite people to return back. And they say, how are we going to return? And he said, the way that you are robbing me, the way you think you own things, the way you think you're God, and therefore we withhold generosity. I give you generously, but you hoard. And then lastly, you see, the, they, they accuse God. They speak against God. They speak ill of God. They say, look, we have ultimately found that serving you is worthless. It's not worth it. And then they begin to blaspheme against God. So notice in those three disputes, three tendencies that I think are exposed for us by the prophet Malachi. One, in the fourth dispute, we have the ability to justify anything. I mean, we can justify and explain away. We can make excuses for anything. You see that even the things that they were excusing and, and justifying, did you hear the list in the first verse? bit of of chapter 3 from verse 5. The whole of verse 5 is a list of things that they had begun to justify and even said that God's okay with. And he said, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to show you that's not okay. The second dispute, or the fifth dispute, the second thing we see in in this passage is that we have a tendency to think that we own everything. It shows up in the way we're entitled to things. We feel like we're owed things. And in the last dispute, as they begin to blaspheme against God, we think that we can say whatever we want without consequences. And so these three disputes that we see, as they wrap up the, the list of disputes in, in the prophet Malachi, and, and I would say even the way in which we are to prepare to celebrate Christmas, the coming of the Lord to be with us in Christ, the way, we, the way we commemorate and say, okay, this is what Christmas is about, will be to take seriously the ways in which God sent Malachi to prepare these people for his coming. Let's begin to walk through, I think, these things. Starting in the first, the fourth disputation, fourth dispute, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 2. Last weeks we've seen that God comes in disputes, beginning with declaring his love, and then and then declaring that they that they had not honored him properly. And last week we saw that they had not kept covenant in a way that, that rightly reflected his faithfulness. And so what we see here is that. There's a divine messenger that's coming to cleanse God's people and to restore right practice and right worship, right obedience. And the name of the Lord was going to be great among the nations we saw in chapter one, and we saw again here that the nations will see God's goodness and call these people blessed. And so there's three things in the first dispute. First, there's a need for messianic intervention. Did you catch that? It's like this divine it's like this divine kind of statement from the father don't make me come down there right don't make me pull over this car right but instead as we saw in chapter one it's it's a statement of love it's saying I'm gonna come, I'm gonna help I'm coming down I'm gonna step into this I'm going to help fix what's broken the second thing we see is there's a a need for judgment a day of a day of the Lord very common prophetic language in the minor prophets but then lastly, lastly, you see in that first dispute, there is a need for justice. There is a need to make right what is wrong. To so stop calling, right? Stop calling evil things good. Right? Did, did you catch that? Stop stop saying these things are okay in verse five. And so they seem to accuse God. They're not only complaining that things are not any good, but they blame it on God. And they use that blame to justify basically calling evil what is good and what is good, and even calling what is good evil. And God simply says like, okay, fine, I'll be right there. So that you will know what is good, so that you will know what is evil, so that you know what I'm like, I'm going to enter in. And God says he's going to send a messenger. Did you catch that? Verse 1, chapter 3. I will send the messenger. He will prepare the way before me. All right? So this is exciting as we celebrate the, the fulfilled prophecy uh, of Christmas. This is, this is the story of John the Baptist, right? We saw this last Christmas as we saw like kind of the precursor of, of Elijah and, and, the, and the powerful and miraculous birth of even Samuel. And, and then we saw last year the, the powerful and miraculous birth of Samson. All of them preparing all of them appetizers for the one that is to come. And their messenger is going to come. And then he's going to, as he makes the way, the, the Lord whom you seek is going to enter into his temple. What I want you to see here, probably more than anything, is that if God draws near to us without purifying us, we'll be consumed. If God rejects that which is evil, if God can't stand that which is evil because he's holy and perfect, that's a problem for you and me who are sinful and flawed. And when we cry, like, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's cool if he's coming with mercy, if he's coming with grace, if he's coming to fix what's broken. That's great. But if he's coming to eliminate and wipe out that which is evil, that's a problem for us because that would include us. But here's the good news in this. God moves toward us. The emphasis here is not on our movement toward God. Did you catch that? The emphasis is on God's movement toward us. I'm coming down there. I won't leave you alone. The accent is on God's actions for us, not on our actions for Him. The spotlight is on on God's faithfulness. Not on ours. Think of it this way. The spotlight is on God's character. Not ours. And that's amazingly good news. That's amazingly good news because if he comes in person to wipe out all that's broken, then we'll be the first thing he wipes out. This is incredibly practical for us as we prepare for Christmas, but also as we live as a a body of believers in our city. Most people assume that the local church is simply like a place where good people get together. This is where the moral people, this is where the well-dressed, upright people, this is, this is where they get together. That's what the church is. And you see this in, in the way people talk about the church, what's acceptable in the church, right? you heard this? In reality, the church is a group of guilty people who gather to be reminded that God moves towards us. We gather to remind one another of what Christ has done for us. We gather to remind one another we are safe from the judgment that we rightly deserve. Jesus is the one who has now made us right, pure, and forgiven. And so, friend, you can dispense with the efforts to look like you have it all together. You can dispense with the efforts to clean yourself up. And instead, you can be reminded, God will come and do that for you. God will come. And a right and good declaration of Christians is that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Now, on the other hand, by all means, if you think I'm wrong, if you want to keep on cleaning yourself up, if you want to keep on trying to earn the love of God, good luck, okay? Have at it, right? You want to be perfect and sinless for the rest of your life? Here's what I'll say. Good luck with that, okay? But when you realize that's a failed endeavor, I want you to know, by the grace of God, the people of God, the church, will have its doors wide open for you to come back and admit what's true. That in spite of your inability to make yourself good, God is in His mercy moved towards us to demonstrate what is good and make us clean. So friend, when you fail at living a clean, spotless, and right life, right? And even when you fail to live up to the standards that you hold people to, right? You know what that's like. Remember, in that dissonance, in that disappointment, that you were never meant to trust in your ability to do that anyway. And God has promised to come and do for you what you could never do for yourself. These people began to justify evil. As if to say, if God hasn't punished this yet, then it must be okay. Did you catch that? These evil things, they're okay in the sight of the Lord. And they even cry out and question something I think you and I would feel like they would resonate with us. Is like, where's God in all this brokenness? When is God going to fix all this? But notice he comes to point out what is true, what is right, what is good, to purify the people God's response in verse one through five to send a messenger who will purify the leadership, the priest remember last week we saw that one of the like the, the, the evidence of brokenness in chapter one is that even the priests were okay with with rotten and broken sacrifices, and even this this last week we saw even the priests and the people weren't weren't keeping covenant they weren't they weren't saying what was true about God's covenant and faithfulness towards his people, and good news we saw last week that like Joe invited us. Pray for the leadership. Pray for pastors. Pray for leaders. People who, as he said there, as we saw in chapter 2, people who guard the knowledge of God. Well, good news. One of the first things Jesus will do is he will purify the leadership. Did you catch that? The the sons of Levi in verse, I believe it's in verse 3, will be made right. He'll be refined. This is good. Pray for this. Pray that pastors would be made pure by Christ alone. (laughs) Pray that your GC leaders, pray that the people around you who guard God, the knowledge of God, would show the evidence of this, apart which we're lost. And then, secondly, they're gonna execute justice in the way that he comes to execute justice. I'm gonna get there, I'm gonna draw near, and all the things that you've been okay with, I'm going to point out. I will be a swift witness, it says, against and it gives a list sorcery, adultery, swearing falsely those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, the, those who are against the sojourner. and Do not fear me, says the Lord. All I know to tell you is, if you were to tease out every one of these, and I, I, I kind of want to be an equal opportunity offender here. Um, if you tease out one of these, taken as a whole, at least one or more of these will probably, if not definitely, offend your political sensibilities, right? Justice to the hired worker, right? What are you, a Marxist, right? No, I'm a biblicist. Care for the sojourner, the immigrant, the refugee, like, right? You hear this? Like, what are you, a liberal? Like, no, I just hear God's word, what about those who swear falsely? You get you get the idea why you get the idea why like conspiracy theories are a problem for a Christian? Because those who swear when we spread false information, I don't just don't miss this. We incur the judgment and wrath of God. And so just just this list here is is something that Jesus is going to come and expose what's good and evil. And friend, remember what I told you, we have a profound ability to justify anything. We can explain away and give excuses for anything. And all this is meant to do is to invite us to think there is a right and pure and holy God. And we will with humility, with humility, as much as he will grant us, begin to recognize injustice in the world because that's what Jesus came to fix. And so therefore, we're, right, we're wary of what we call good, because we know we're, we have, we're prone to call evil things good, right? And we're wary of what we call evil, right? We're, we're you're wary of like demonizing and, right, of other people, dehumanizing, others, because we, we have a profound tendency to call good things evil. And so this is an invitation to humility. You want to celebrate Christmas rightly, reflect on the holiness and perfection of God, and in humility prepare for him to come in and say what's right and say what's wrong. The second thing, the tendency you see addressed in the next one is that we, we tend to think we own everything. Now, beginning in verse six, I think we see here is like, in spite of the Lord, in spite of our disobedience, the Lord doesn't change. But when God comes in the form of Jesus to make us holy He makes us holy to make us generous. Notice what he says is going to happen. I'm going to come, and the place where he's going to expose the ways in which you haven't returned to me is in the area of generosity. Now, I just want to warn you, if you have any background in the church, Malachi chapter 3, this is the part where the pastor pulls out Malachi chapter 3 and beats people over the head with it to get money. This is the the show-me-the-money passage of the Bible. Okay, there's two problems with that and they're why I won't do that today. One, the profound generosity of the people in this room. You in this room like have been so generous. Our church gets to like be on mission, equip people. We we get to we get to do like there's just so many blessings we get to enjoy and they're all every single one of them because someone has been generous. This again, as we like, we're staying I'm standing on a stage full of equipment that we didn't buy that someone bought for us, right? I'm 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 sitting around with enjoying gifts that someone else gave to us. And we get to give and bless, and even in this difficult year, our church has been able to give and bless ministries in our city and around the globe and bless church planters who are out making much of Jesus in a difficult time. And you and I have been able to be a part of that because you're generous. So I'm not gonna beat you over the head with this because it just wouldn't apply generosity has been a value that we aspire to as a church, and I just all I have to do here is to commend you. Thank you. But the second reason why I'm not going to do that is that's not the context. The context is not their relationship to money. The context is their relationship to the Lord. Money is not the problem. Notice that list of tithes and offerings. This isn't explicitly a sermon or a passage about tithing although it mentions tithing and contribution. It's explicitly a sermon about who owns everything. And when they were acting like they owned everything, didn't generously reflect the heart of God. Remember we saw last week, to to not keep covenant, to break promise, that's a problem because it says something untrue about God. The same thing is here. When you're not generous, it's a problem because what you're saying is untrue about God. That God is somehow stingy. And so the context of this is about the relationship between God and his people. Namely, they don't really believe that God owns everything. The Lord does not change, but he makes us holy in order to make us generous. He will refine them, and then he will make them capable of returning to them. And the way that they will be able to see that is their offerings. He's purifying these people. So that they will demonstrate his generosity to one another and to the world. And so you can't notice in the first dispute, they're changed and made holy. In the second dispute we're talking about today, now they're made generous. But notice, you can't get to generosity in the second part until you address that the Lord is the one who has to make you right. He's the one who refines us, and therefore he's the one of making our generosity possible. Here's what I think that means for us. I never want you to give your money ever, ever, ever without acknowledging first that Jesus is the refiner and judge. I share this often with you. When we give generously, it's a gospel declaration. I don't ever want you to give to Connection Church or anything out of guilt. We don't give guilt offerings here. I don't want you to give as a sin offering. to like make up for something, Right? I don't want you to make a give money as a peace offering as if to like kind of win someone or something over. Jesus is our guilt offering, he's our sin offering, he's our peace offering. He is a sufficient sacrifice. His offering is perfect and makes it possible for us to respond in generosity. He gives the gift you could never buy. If you give first and get the object after, that's a transaction. That's buying. That just makes you a consumer. But notice the order of the dispute. If he gives us his holiness and his righteousness, and then we just respond in giving, then we're just just simply responding to his generosity. Generosity is a return to him. I'm going to illustrate this in a a way. Um, Austin, would you do me a favor? Would you come up on the stage with me? I'm going to illustrate a point here. He does not know I'm doing this. I did not ask him for permission to do this. Which is why he'll never forget this object lesson, and you won't either. Austin, I'm inviting you up here without telling you this, partially because you're so servant-hearted and kind. You're the least likely to punch me for doing this. I just want you to know that. There's other people that would punch me, for that, and you wouldn't, and I love you for that. Do you believe I love you? I'm going to start with Malachi chapter 1, right? I love you. And how, do, and how have you loved me? I chose you. I didn't choose any, I didn't choose any of these clowns. I chose you. Okay. I'm going to give Austin $100. Oh, yeah. Not so funny anymore, right? <laughs> pick me, pick me. Nope. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. Here we go. <laughs> so I'm going to give you $100. And you, you agree. You, have, you haven't worked for me this morning. You haven't done anything for me. I don't owe this to you, right? You haven't done anything to deserve this, right? Okay, so I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. Okay, and I have one request. Like you, that, that hundred—I didn't like take that from you or something. That's from my—that's that's my money. Okay, I just gave you a hundred dollars. I, I have one request of you. Okay, whatever you do, whatever you do, I, I want to every bit whatever you do with that money, I want to you. I want you to be able to acknowledge where you got that money. That's it. That's all I want. And I want you to therefore give accordingly. Like invest in things that I think. You should, things that would reflect me, right? So tithe, contribution, give, give to, maybe think about giving to a connection church, give to the, give to the building fund. And, and here's the thing later, I'm gonna ask you what you gave to. I'm gonna, literally, accountable, right? I'm gonna hold you to a, okay, hey, what did you give? And all I'm asking is that you enjoy that. Enjoy that in a way that you acknowledge where it came from, right? If you take someone out to eat with that, just say, hey, man, this guy gave me some money I didn't earn, I didn't even earn, right? So I'm gonna give this money. Mean, you didn't earn it, right? We agree. If I hear later you're like tweeting or like putting on like I earned $100 a day, that's a lie. You don't even believe him. And all I want you to do is to so whatever you do with that money, acknowledge where you got it. That's it. And whatever you do, give in such a way that reflects how you got it. Is that cool? All right, You can take a seat. I think if you should. Yeah. Thank you. You should applaud that. <laughs> He's too kind-hearted to want to punch me, but later he he will think of it and wish he had. <laughs> Friend, that's it. That's giving. That's the tithe. It just simply, we the word tithe just simply means the word tenth. It's, just a, it's a proportion. And and Old Testament people gave three tithes, right? Actually, gave three tenths. And so here's what I want to say that's it that's giving acknowledging that you have things that you do not deserve you did not earn and so may oh no I earned my money I earned it like yeah yeah but you earned it doing something that you didn't make yourself so you're smart good for you you didn't make yourself smart Right, So maybe, I mean, maybe you have a strong back and you're good at what you're like. Maybe you're wicked good at, at you know, fill in the blank. And, and you didn't make yourself good. All of those things are a result of someone else teaching you or granting you some gift. And that's all we do. We simply walk around acknowledging, none of this I deserve. We just acknowledge, God gave it all to me. And so therefore, I'm going to do what rightly refle- reflects his heart. Now granted, if, if, if I tell Austin, hey, get, you better give this money to this thing, and, and he just goes, no. Notice, that's fraud. Did you hear the language? That's robbery. You're not rightly acknowledging the purpose of that gift and that money. And that's all I want to illustrate for you. Is these people, again, the goal, is, the goal isn't to raise money on this one. The goal is to reflect on how money reveals your heart. And the goal is to reflect in our own hearts the generosity that God has shown to us. That why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In God's love, He gave, right? For God so loved the world that what? He gave. You cannot talk about the gospel without talking about generosity and sacrifice. The generosity of God emptying heaven to, to win back His sinful, wandering children, and the sacrifice that Christ has laid down His own life to ransom your soul and mine. We don't deserve it, and now we just walk around and like marvelous. I can't believe I have this. I can't believe He did this for me. God makes us holy to make us generous. And so therefore, we acknowledge that all things belong to God. Malachi tells us, and to believe and act otherwise is stealing. Right, like, do you hear the rhetorical question? Can man rob God? Right, it's like, you know, I don't know, just imagine that. Like, hey, where'd you get that? I stole it from God. Right, like, that, how, how'd you, you stole it. From God. He's, he can't get it back. You Okay, all right. You're going to hide it somewhere where he can't find it? Right? Like, it's a rhetorical question. It's silly. Like, how, if God owns the universe, if God created everything and sustains everything, it's like, how would you steal from him? And that's the point. If God owns everything, then we just live in, gra- in glad faith, and we live in the, in the light of just, just being recipients of his kindness. We acknowledge that God owns everything. Our resources. Our time, our treasure, our talent is just simply a response. The realization that we have all these things as a good gift. Our church has been incredibly generous in this area. And I think it's because, I think, because the Spirit of God is working in our hearts. I only want to warn you against two things. The difference between buying and throwing away. He says here that I want you to to give and therefore you'll be living under blessing. Therefore, like if you're not giving these tithes and contributions you're not investing in his purposes, right? And I believe that for the the New Testament church, that means the local church and the ministry that, that we engage in. And here's what I would say. If you don't want to give money to the mission and vision of Connection Church, I'm actually okay with that. But you're not off the hook from the Bible's perspective. You need to find a local church that you do want to lay down your time, treasure, and talent, your money, your whole life for. And if it's not Connection Church, I'm biased. I think I could try to convince you otherwise, but that's okay. But you're not off the hook. And don't use, like, the flaws and failures of a local church as an excuse to ignore the hard-heartedness that you're hiding. Give generously. Why? Because freely we've been given, now we freely give. All things belong to God, we believe that, and we act accordingly. And so that frees us from the need to buy or throw away. Most of what we call giving gets lumped into the category of buying that is a transaction. We give to get something back, right? I expect a benefit. I expect it to be treated a certain way. I expect it to be, you know, I expect, if I give, I expect these things. It's a transaction, right? Otherwise, I'm going to go to the next store, next door, and I'm going to give there, right? And I'm going to expect that transaction. Notice, that is not the gospel, and that is not giving, right? God has freely given to us his son, knowing that we would reject him knowing that he would be hung on a cross. He said, you can have it anyway. That's how much I love you. And so therefore I give, expecting nothing in return, knowing that you'll reject me, and yet a demonstration of God's love nonetheless. So be careful. Whenever you contribute something to anything and expect something in return, fair, but that's, a, that's an invitation to repent. Why? Remember what we saw last week? Because you're not reflecting the heart of God. God isn't sitting around going like, you owe me, right? He's not sitting like, you haven't measured up. And that ought to be freeing for some of you. He gave out of the overflow of his own delight. He loved the world that he gave. And so that frees us from the temptation to be entitled and to buy. The second thing that frees us is from the temptation to simply throw away. And we saw this. This is a reflection of chapter one. They were giving not their best, but they were giving what was left. That's throwing away. That's not giving, right? If you're just like, "Hey, I've I've done all the things I want to do, and now with the leftovers, I'll consider what God's will is for my money," right? That's that's not giving. That's throwing away. That's that's again in in a middle class society, we get to call that disposable income. What a great what what an oxymoron, right? Like it's just throw it away, right? That's not giving. Giving is not simply hoarding for yourself what you need and then whatever's left over, you, you kind of let go of. Giving is when you recognize, man, I'm going to do without. I'm going to sacrifice knowing that He'll care for me. Did you see how we're freed of that? It says, test me in this. This is the only time in the whole Bible that says this. In fact, later in the passage, people are rebuked for testing the Lord. But this is this weird thing. He's like, it's as if the Lord is saying, I dare you to be generous. I dare you to be generous and see what happens. I dare you to see. Now, now, this is where often this is co-opted by what we call the prosperity gospel, the belief that we give so that God will give us health, wealth, and, and we, just, we just know that's not true because of life and the New Testament. In this world, you'll have trouble, but take heart, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. So you, you won't experience treasure or health or wealth in this life. You might. That'd be a blessing and good for you. Be generous with it. But that isn't our hope. Our hope is that our secure, faith, our secure future is is that our health, wealth, and prosperity is wrapped up in the Lord of Hosts. We're going to be in His presence. We're going to be walking on the streets of gold. This idea that like you can buy the Lord's blessing is again, it's it's a false gospel that unfortunately prosperous Westerners has have exported around the world. You will suffer. And yet, here's the thing, God's grace will be sufficient. You don't have to hold tightly to this life, to the money you have, to the time you have, because the Lord will redeem every single bit of it. The last section is this. The sixth dispute, beginning in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. The people have ultimately overruled God. We can now speak rightly of God because we belong to Him. Did you see that in verse 13? Their words have been hard, right? The Lord is saying, like, you have blasphemed against me. You're blaming me for things. You're you're speaking ill of me. And yet, you can say what's true of me. Why? Skip to the end. Verse 17. They shall be mine. So notice, they were, they were saying something untrue about God. They were blaspheming against God because they didn't realize that they, were, that they were God's very own possession. And so therefore, they were mad at God. They thought God was letting evil happen. They thought God was going to abandon them. And yet his response, look, as you reflect on this, you will come to find that I, I am faithful to you. You can trust me. We can speak rightly of God because we know that in Christ we are his possession. He has bought us back. And you know what speaking rightly of God is? Call it worship. You can sing songs in the midst of a pandemic, saying rightly and accurately who God is because we know we belong to him. We know that this life is but a breath. We are but dust, we're a vapor, we're like grass. And yet the Lord is mindful of us because He is our Father. We belong to Him. Did you, did you hear that? As, I'll spare them as like a son. I'm going I'm to be a refiner's fire, but in the end, I, I love these people because they're my children. So friend, like them, do you think that serving God is a waste? And therefore think you can speak against Him? Maybe you wonder what's the point in all this? We can speak rightly and worshipfully about God because we belong to Him. Think of it this way in this season, Malachi is preparing us to receive this. We are not faithful in our waiting. All right, Malachi points out the ways in which these people were unfaithful in their waiting, didn't really think God was good, didn't really think God was just. And we, we wrestle with that same impatience, don't we? But the good news is that God is faithful and is coming. As unfaithful as we might be, as, as much as these words might hit home for all of us, as, have, we're, we're so callous towards injustice, right? We're, we're so cold and we're so entitled as we see our possessions. We're, We ultimately like doubt and are cynical towards God, and we are unfaithful to him. We are not patient waiting for him to make all things new, and yet he is patient and faithful in his coming. And this week, as you celebrate Christmas, remember, friend, as unfaithful as you and I are, as entitled as we tend to act, as much as we tend to not acknowledge where all good gifts come from, he still lavishes them on on us. He still returns to us and moves toward us. He's faithful to us. So, friend, in Christ, God's come to make us pure. We're generous because He possesses everything. And on the top of that list of His possessions that grant us hope in the midst of a hopeless situation is that one of His possessions is His very own children. Jesus comes as a king to demonstrate this to us, and my invitation to response here is simple. One of the hardest parts about Christmas is not that Jesus comes to take up his throne. One of the hardest parts about Christmas is that he has to dethrone all the things we've placed on his throne. One of the hardest parts about saying that the king has come is that we are so prone to sit in his seat And one of the most difficult things that we acknowledge at Christmas, the season of Advent, reflecting on these last words, as Malachi invites us to to prayerfully consider, is that when Jesus comes to refine and to purify, right, to clean off his throne, we have to admit the fact that he should rightly clean us off of his throne. We have to dethrone, we have to be dethroned before he can sit on his throne. And so we're quick to say, Come, Lord Jesus, reign over all of this mess. But the invitation that Malachi offers for us is not just to simply say, Lord Jesus, come reign over all this mess. It's to say, Come, Lord Jesus, and reign over me. I'm in desperate need of you to come make me pure, to make me generous, to make me yours. In a moment, we're going to respond in obedience. We're going to declare God's word in song in just a moment, but, but we're going to do so preparing, as 1 Corinthians 11 tells us, to celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, an act of faith in which Christians respond. I'll read you what the Apostle, says that, apostle Paul says, that he received from the Lord what he also delivered to the church, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. Now do this in remembrance of me. In a minute, we're going to do that. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. You'll do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me, and so we'll respond in, in faith. And so here's what I'll say. If you're, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, well then, then I want to invite you, don't, don't take part in what we're about to do. You don't have to feel pressured or obligated to participate in it. He says elsewhere here later on, if you eat or drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you actually are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And it brings curses. It it brings punishment on us. It says, but now let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup rightly. And so if you're not a believer, eating this bread and drinking this little sip of juice would be just a very dissatisfying snack. But for those of us who have welcomed the Lord Jesus to take over our lives, to make us pure, to grant us grace we did not deserve. In the presence of faith, it's the most nourishing and satisfying thing that we can imagine. That Christ in all his sufficiency has laid down his life and poured out his blood. And that's enough. Let's pray together as we prepare to take this with one another. God, we thank you for your mercy towards us. In Christ, I thank you for this messenger, Malachi. We know so little about him, and yet we thank you uh, that he speaks for you. We confess that like the original audience in, in Malachi, we, we, we are not faithful in, in preparing for what you are to do. We confess that we, we feel entitled to everything, like we own everything. We, we confess that we, we're so slow to, to call evil, what it is, and we justify so many things, and we also blaspheme against you. We complain against you and rather than crying out to you, and yet in spite of all of these shortcomings on our part, you have demonstrated your faithfulness to come and to be with us and for us in Christ. I thank you that this baby born of a virgin that we commemorate this week laid in a manger Poured out his life for those who betrayed him. I thank you that he hung on the cross to take the place that I rightfully deserved. And his blood was poured out to pay a penalty that I rightly owed. But Lord, as we reflect and think on these things, might we partake in this supper, partake in this meal, this this satisfying act of faith in which we remember your sufficient sacrifice, might we do so in such a way that speaks rightly of you, of your generosity, of your goodness towards us, of your care towards us, like a father loving his children. Might we respond in faith as we partake in this. Might we reflect as we declare these things in song. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.